Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading through the NYRB classics. I'm Kasia. I'm Dylan. Our book this week is The Other House by Henry James. It was originally published in 1896. Is that our oldest book yet? I was going to say that. I believe so. This startling novel is the story of a struggle for possession and of its devastating consequences. Three women seek to secure the affections of one man, while he, in turn, tries to satisfy them all. But at the center of this contest of wills stands his unwitting, vulnerable young daughter. The conclusion of The Other House makes it one of the most disturbing and memorable of Henry James' depictions of the uncontrollable passions that lie beneath the polished veneer of civilized life. Fantastic. And to discuss this book, we are joined by writer and scholar Sheridan Hay. Welcome, Sheridan Hay. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for asking me. So we first became aware of your connection to this book and to Henry James through the reading groups that you host through the Center for Fiction. Why did you decide to pursue Henry James and talking about him with people and specifically the lesser known works of Henry James? Well, I've been reading Henry James and leading a reading group for probably more than 10 years now. And of course, I sort of did all the high points um, first, Portrait of a Lady, The Ambassadors, Wings of the Dove, A Golden Bowl. Um, and in fact, I've done all of those more than once now. Oh, and wow. then you sort of, then you go to the next tier. And, and then what becomes pretty quickly apparent is, at least in my case, a deep fascination with James's life and the life of somebody who essentially sort of made himself a kind of priest of art, mm-hmm. you know, that his life was so um, dedicated to his craft, to his art, and how he was going to change it and develop it. And what ends up being sort of the astounding thing about the career, uh, the publishing career of, of Henry James and his artistic development is that he ends up being essentially a modernist Mm -hmm. you know he is the precursor he becomes the precursor to James Joyce uh, Virginia Woolf T.S. Eliot I mean even um, I was reading the other day um, Gertrude Stein sort of wrestling with uh, (laughs) the legacy of Henry James and I was like you're kidding me Gertrude Stein and we did this lecture about that she wrote about um, James. She actually says something like, um, it's such a sort of a Gertrude Stein thing. She says, everybody needs to feel what they think, comma, about Henry James. You know, <laughs> and she's kind of thing. And I think it was this whole kind of anxiety of influence sort of thing. Mm. So anyway, if you're really interested in the novel in English, Henry James is your man. And and also, um, Cassia, you were just mentioning his whole sort of international theme and the fact that he was American, but that he lived from the time, I think, 18, 1887. He was essentially a permanent resident of Europe. But, you know, so he was fluent in French. He could read German. Of course, his brother was the great um, psychologist, William James. So you've got, and he lived through the most extraordinary um, period of industrialization and, and modernization. Yeah, And there's a huge kind of anxiety there that's quite apparent about modernization and 
and you know and its legacy and what is being lost he has a very strong response to and and often very comic response to modern things and to ideas that are really mostly driven by commercialization the commodification of art is something that he ends up being very interested in and and critical of it's no surprise to me that um in the last say uh, 15 years or so that people turn back to henry james people who are interested in literature and the development of literature and how we you know how it shapes our consciousness mm-hmm. um it's he's really one of the sources and he's also one of the sources because he himself was so influenced by for example Nathaniel Hawthorne you Mm. know for who for Americans is a kind of a baseline um and and also you know he loved Balzac he read and wrote about and lectured on Balzac actually but also Flaubert and and Zola I mean so you know so there's a there's a great kind of um swirling um series of influences and out of that he makes such a distinct and um and profound contribution to how we how we how we think how we think about reading how we think about books um, how our consciousness is shaped by um, by what it is we read and how it is, how it affects us. So, so that's I mean, I kind of forgot the question. Now I think <laughs> James, I, I'm actually a Melvillian to be to, to really you. okay okay. And, we um, um, are amateur Melvillians ourselves. <laughs> maybe you want to take the Moby Dick uh, group, which starts in November. Um, but I, I'm actually a Melvillian, and um, so. But then, you know, I, I, you can, you know, I must have done Moby Dick twelve or thirteen times for the center. So, you know, a few years ago, I, I was sort of looking around for other things, and, um, you know, the writers like Henry James and Melville, for that matter, these are rabbit holes that you can just go down, and they've they've become a kind of cottage industry of criticism mm. and of. Um, of sort of attenuated response that people will generate endlessly, endlessly, you know, there's always going to be another book written about Henry James or, yeah. or another, another reissue or another, um, you know, a, somebody else's, a, a differing um, interpretation. And of course, not unlike Shakespeare, who profoundly influenced Melville and Henry James in that, for that matter, um, you know, this is this is why you go back to a writer, right? Because you know there's so much in there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it ends up feeling a little sort of Talmudic or something. You know, yeah. you turn it this way and that way, and every for everything is in it, kind of thing. You know, so mm-hmm. um, these are great, great sort of um, preoccupations if you happen to be sort of nerdy in the way that I am, and, and, and- evidently that you two are. Yes, we are also uh, denizens of literary rabbit holes. And I think most of our listeners are probably too. To to give the the listeners a little bit of a brief background um, on Henry James, you spoke of him so knowledgeably. So this is almost a step backward. But he was born in New York in 1843. 
Um, he is considered one of the greatest American writers, uh, though he did become a naturalized British citizen near the end of his life and spent a lot of time abroad. Fittingly, you know, he's known for depicting this tension and interplay between American and European cultures. Among his most celebrated works, and you mentioned some of them, are Portrait of a Lady, The Ambassadors, The Turn of the Screw. But not at all well known, really, are the three James novels published by NYRB Classics. So there's this one, The Other House, The Outcry, and The Ivory Tower. You said that you waited a little bit before moving down to this tier of his career. (laughs) But uh, where do these books fit into your understanding of his career as a whole? Well, let's set the ivory tower aside because it wasn't published in his lifetime and it's incomplete. Okay. Gotcha. Oh, okay. So, um, so he died in in 1916. So it wasn't published until afterwards. And so, if we set that aside, what, what's interesting about the other two, and we're going to talk about the other house specifically, is that um, they both arrived. Um, they were both were first conceived as plays. Mm-hmm. So um, Henry James had a uh, a period in the late uh, 1880s into 1890s, um, early 1890s, where he he was always a great lover of the theatre and he wanted to write plays. Um, now, part of this was um, driven by, you know, personal interest and um, captivation with the theatre, which he soon got over, but um, the but the other thing which ne- which doesn't really get a lot of play with Henry James is that he he thought that this would be a good way for him to make a lot of money, sure. um, because even though his family was um, his father inherited a, a vast fortune, um, he needed to he needed to earn a living, and um, and by the late eighteen nineties he'd been spending a long time writing huge significant novels now which were which are very interesting the princess casamassima and actually a, a a long novel about the theater at least that features an actress um called the tragic muse so he clearly had this interest in the theater and he thought well i'm going to try and sort of tra- transition into writing uh, to into becoming a playwright so he actually spent about 5 years um doing this and Certain plays were mounted, uh, a, a version of an early novel called The American um, played in the provinces. And then he spent a lot of time and there was a big production of a play called Guy Domville. Um, and and th- this is a sort of, there's various apocryphal stories about how this happened but um, and why this happened. But there was a profound moment on the opening night and George Bernard Shaw and all of his friends um, are in the um, in the orchestra in the best seats in the house. Um, the play goes off. Uh, um, James is called out um, onto the stage, and um, various different accounts will say that there were that there was a paid crowd of um, kind of hoods, you know, kind oh. of that that it was deliberately set up that they started. Um, they started booing and hooting and oh and gosh. then yeah and then the supporters of james so were were applauding even more and there was a little bit of a back and forth for various some accounts he sort of stood there for 10 or 15 minutes completely gobsmacked and uh, and incapable oh of of comprehending what was going on but but in any case 
a profound humiliation. Um, Oh, gosh. Different, yeah. (laughs) And this is an extremely sensitive and and even though um, very social person, rather a shy uh, and 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 a person just completely adverse to any sort of um, publicity or public sense of exposure, you know. Mm-hmm. In any case, Leonie Dell, um, James's great biographer, makes uh, a huge event out of this. Subsequent um, uh, biographers don't play it down a little bit more, but the but the fact is. Whether it was whether you can link that, which makes a nice story, to link it to one evening event, you know, of of complete personal horror. Um, yeah. Uh, the, I mean, the play didn't didn't wasn't taken off the next day or anything, but I think it only played for another two weeks or something. But in any case, this begins a period of illness, um, physical illness, and depression. Mm. And during this period. Um, he really can't work, and he, he and he really doesn't work. And this is a this is a person of just absolutely astonishingly prodigious output. Like what mm. James produced in his lifetime is, is, yeah. is just, I, I I I can't even think of any of any comparable um, uh, writer who produced as much. So in any case, out of that. He realizes, you know, look, the thing I've got to do out of this depression and, and what his brother called melancholia, um, I've got to get back to work. And in he goes back to his notebooks, and in in um, 1893, so this is during the period of when he's right, trying to write for the theater. He he writes out a whole little scenario um, that he calls the promise, which is actually what becomes the other house. Mm-hmm. Now, you guys know why it would be called The Promise from reading mm-hmm. it. Right. You want to, do you want, why don't you, I'm talking way too much, so why don't you say? Absolutely. So it would refer to the wife of Anthony Bream, this kind of wealthy banker, who um, on her deathbed asks him to promise that he will not marry after she's gone. Um, however, the promise is kind of revised to mean, well, at least until as long as our child is alive, you will not marry anyone else. <laughs> and who, revised, who's, who helps him revive, revise that? Um, I don't actually of, remember. Is it Rose? Was it okay, that's who you would expect it to be. <laughs> <laughs> so helpful. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, so he he returns to this, um, what he calls in his notebook, a pot boiler. And, 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 in an, and in this sort of, I mean, a little bit of a time of restoration, of returning back to his notebooks, which are, which are the most astonishing thing to read. And he, he kept, you know, for most of his life and had what he would call his donnays, these little germs of ideas of different things that then, you know, five years later turn into the ambassadors or something, you know, sure. so, mm-hmm. um, or a short story or something. Uh, so he takes this idea, which was initially for a play, and he turns it into The Other House, um, and it's published in 1896. And mm-hmm. one, of the, one, of, one of the really interesting things that you may be aware of um, from the notes that I sent you was that one of the really interesting things in the notebook is that when he conceives of it as a play, 
the murder that happens in the novel um, does not happen. It's attempted murder. Very different thing than actual murder. So, I mean, because there's something really very diabolical about the act in in, um, the other house. Mm -hmm. And maybe talk about that at the end. One of the reasons why I would say is that that even if you know what how the, what happens in the end, that that it's that it's enough of a hinge novel in the in the career of Henry James for it to have its own interest. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, of course, it is. It's it's very unusual for a Henry James novel, like The Outcry, also very unusual, also adapted from a play. They're snappy, they moves quickly, there's no exposition. He's really experimenting with a new technique, which he calls the scenic method. And the scenic method is pretty simply, you you know, you you can imagine what it is and and you can imagine it being conceived from somebody who is adapting um, the long form of a novel to how to write um, for uh, only action, right, yeah. for only appearances. And at this point, I wouldn't mind just mentioning too the, the tremendous influence that Ibsen and Ibsen's plays had on Henry James at this time when he was, you know, when he was not only trying to write for the theatre, but that, I mean, when an Ibsen play came on um, in the, in the um, early 1890s, I think 1891 was probably the first um performance of an Ibsen play in English in London, he would go four and five times, uh, sometimes twice in a week. Um, so this was a real study here. Sure. You know? And he says a really interesting thing about that. When, and then he wrote like four um, articles about Ibsen. So he was, he was uh, what's really interesting and, and why the other house becomes this sort of artifact, you know, mm-hmm. in James's development is that, you know, he was really – um, studying Ibsen, probably with the intention of figuring out how to write, a, you know, better plays and, and plays that were um, that 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 spoke to issues that he was really interested in, ideas of of women's freedom and ideas of 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 what it was to live in a in a to live in a, a constrained and oppressive kind of um, existence in in his case in Victorian England at the time. Um, but what was really interesting when he was started to write about Ibsen and write various reviews and things, what he was really taken was, is he says, the picture not of an action but of a condition. You know, his drama is essentially that supposedly undramatic thing, the portrait of a nature. So, mm. what, so what he takes from Ibsen and, and Ibsen's so-called difficult women or neurotic women or, the you know, the women who who seemingly in in the context of their time behave and I'll, in quotes out of character what ibsen was was doing was making a different kind of character and james sees that this idea of um a portrait of a nature can be actually the thing that drives a plot sure i can definitely see that in this book yeah. The when we talk about the NYRB edition though, the cover photograph on this is uh from the series My Ghost by the English artist Adam Fuss. Ooh. It shows a picture of a dress, ghostly and empty on a black background. Ooh. Fuss said that the series represents to him a silent grieving of a loss. 
And there is a loss in this book, but it's not necessarily one with a lot of grief or done very silently. So I mm. thought it was an interesting choice for the artwork. What do you what do you think of it, Sheridan? Well, I think it's very beautiful. Yes. Um, but I also think it's a total spoiler to have on the on the cover, which is why I think, <laughs> you know, which is why I think it's uh, and also Lewis Begley completely gives away the plot in the introduction as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we may as well sort of you know get to that i i actually think it's really it's 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 really lovely um one of the reasons why i think it's really lovely is because it restores even though it's an empty dress it restores the presence of the child effie who mm. is completely kind of disregarded in the novel um yeah. and then murdered in mm. broad daylight um mm. dra- uh, now, so what i wanted to say actually about about um about the difference between the initial, what, what I started to say, the dis- difference between the initial conception of, of the play and how it would play out and it being an attempted murder as opposed to an actual murder. It's a really interesting question why James, in all, out of all of his um, novels, I mean, Leonie Dell called it the murder of an innocent because right. I mean, it's, it's it's it seems, it seems, um, you know, sacrificial, you know, in some in some strange way. So, um, you know, I I don't really feel that the novel. There's I have various reasons why I don't think the novel is particularly successful, um, but one of the reasons has to do with how could you um, justify such a sort of diabolical um, act? I mean, right. she's murdered in broad daylight, drowned in the stream which is highly symbolic between these two houses. So yep. Cassio, when, when mm-hmm. you were setting up the, the plot, the other, the other real element of setup of the plot has to do with there are two houses and, they, and the, the house where the child comes from and where Tony Bream is, is called Bounds, which it may as well be called Out of Bounds. So, but it, it, but it <laughs> is a modernity, right? It represents everything is, is, I think it says in the novel, violently modern. It's violent mm-hmm. modern. Whereas yeah. Mrs. Beaver's house, um, I mean, she's, she's a sort of the moral arbiter of the, of the, of the whole set piece, it's referred to that she never set up new gods. She's sort of the pinnacle yes. kind of Victorian. That's a great line. Yeah, Victorian um, uh, conservatism and and, uh, and tradition. But you know, in and in the notebook entry when James is conceiving of this, he literally refers to Rose Armiger, Armiger as the bad heroine and um, Jean Martel as the good heroine and. And in in the conception or the ba- the fictional balance between these things, Jean Martel is 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 so not a patch on the bad heroine that we have to throw in Mrs. Beaver on her side to yeah. kind of <laughs> you know. Um, so, uh, but you know, this was a this was very much a trope that James um, played around with a lot, um, and and the so called bad heroines. Were, were you know were always with the possible exception of Rose because of her act were all were, were always more appealing to me actually than the than the um than the good heroine you know sure. I mean if you think of um if you think in the ambassadors of of Madame de, de Vionnet 
Um, if you think in uh, Wings of the Dove, uh, Kate Croy is just a wonderful, wonderful character. Yeah. And and so is Charlotte Stant in The Golden Bowl. These are all um, these are all heroines in their own way. I mean, it's a kind of an oxymoron, even right. But that but I think that James was really, really fascinated with with the plight of women and with 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 the complication that came with being um, a woman. And in every there's not a there's not a James novel um, where with there's not a scene even in in the other house there's not a scene where the woman doesn't know what's going on more than the man does. That, that <laughs> that's men, a good point. Yeah, yeah, men that's are awesome. Protected by this layer of obtuseness in in James, you know. I mean, you know, I think that I think he really understood that women suffer more, not not just because of the of the condition, the social conditions, particularly at, at the time, but it's because they're capable of suffering more, you know, yeah. and I yeah. think that's really- and also causing suffering. Yes, yes, yes. And I mean, and who has agency in this novel? All the women. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, the men don't have any. They're turning people down there, you know, although when we discussed it in um, my Henry James reading group, uh, somebody said a really interesting thing that said, you know, I think the real monster is Tony Bream. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) When, when, when we're talking about this sort of dichotomy between like the men and the women, we, we, we did like make a strong note that there is this good woman, this bad woman, like you're saying, and we thought it was interesting of like how he was portraying women in that way. And then we also kind of realized that like the men don't get portrayed well either in a way. Most of them are clueless at best and <laughs> neglectfully bad at worst. Hmm. Um, what do you think that like equal opportunity critique that James is using says about the gender roles in this time period? Well, I think what it says, I, I don't, what it says about the gender roles in Henry James is that character is the issue, not gender. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's that's very um, unusual and atypical for a Victorian novel. Now, it's not that the women aren't confined in their various roles and and ways, but but the power player in this novel is Mrs. Beaver. Yeah, um, from literally the first few pages, it's like the, she she's set up as like the the mastermind right. of everything going on. Right, right, and 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 which is one of the reasons why I think the novel is really flawed because she disappears at the end. Yeah, and if she and uh, and do you want to talk about the end? <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think we should just talk about it. Okay, so so um we gotta Rose, say big spoilers though like big spoiler alert. So there's a few different ways to sort of begin to talk about it because from a sort of feminist position now we might say that you know um henry james has written rose armiger as some kind of um transgressional figure who must be punished um you know who who operates kind of um as a, as some sort of warning um, to maintain the status quo of society or whatever. But another interpretation, and, I, and, and one that I would pr- probably lean more towards, uh, the, the reason why I think that argument falls apart is that she's not punished. It's covered up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 
And the murder of a child, the reason that it's covered up is that they're all complicit. Yeah. And they're all complicit. Be, I mean, Tony Bream says, I did it. Uh, Jean Martel says, I killed her. You know, it's like, oh, come on, you people. But but I think <laughs> the point of that really is is an acknowledgement of their complicity. Mm. And in, in uh, knowing, I mean, Tony says at one point, or maybe Jean says to him, you, you know, you knew she, she, he says, I knew she was dangerous. But I like, you know, I like the attention essentially is, is sort of what he's saying. But, but the reason that I think that the, that argument of sort of the, the uh, cautionary tale of the crazy, um, I don't know, fatal attraction type of woman or that passion is completely, you know, dangerous. The reason I think that that falls apart is because she's not covered up, she, because the crime is covered up by everyone involved. Um, yeah. and, and I think that, that as a consequence, what I'm left with is a kind of stinging critique of the hypocrisy of that provincial um, little cast of characters, sure. you know, a one on either side of the stream, you know, the tradition and the modernity and the, and the both of them um, can't uh, bring themselves to expose themselves to what would be an appropriate justice, you know, for, for such a heinous act. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's pretty sharp in that way. Um, yeah. And that's why I was thought that comment about that Tony Bream's the monster is kind of was really an interesting one because it's not something that had occurred to me. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't know. I they all have their share in the monstrousness, Ooh. and I think that's just part of like the really the great design of the book, which, as you were saying, owes some of its hallmarks to the theater because of that really reduced setting that we have. And so we have this really clear like sense of the modern, the old money on one side and the new money on the other. But they, of course, importantly, they both derive their wealth from the same place. It's the same bank. So yeah. there's a sense that it's all kind of like there's differences, but it's all this one like big system that can't truly be escaped no matter what. And can't be reckoned with and can't and can't reckon with something so outside of, um, out of bounds that, you, mm. you know, that it cannot incorporate uh, an, an appropriate response to that. It can only maintain um, the status quo. Sure. And, and, and also the other reason why, and then, and then, and then, you know, Rose is essentially just, you know, banished uh, or taken away. Um, mm-hmm. And there's this lame response that you know, well, she'll have to live with it for the rest of her life, kind of thing. Well, yeah, you know, she'll have to live with a rich guy in like China and stuff. Like, although Dennis says he won't marry her, he, yeah, so, he'll do everything yes. up to that. Oh but, no! <laughs> yeah, really. But you I don't think, get to get married. But I think that's that, the real punishment. I, I think the. Um, I think when James then, I mean, he sort of thought of this as a pot boiler and, 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 you know, and, and something, and, and it was kind of funny too, because when it was published in the, in the illustrated London news, which was not a, which was kind of a rag and, and filled with sensational <laughs> things, so oh. it was quite deliberately writing a sensational thing, you know, that, sure, but, sure. but what was sort of hilarious, it was serialized. And what was sort of hilarious was that they kept getting ahead of him uh, in, 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 
the illustrators were getting ahead of the installments and so they kept using this oh. image of of a beautiful woman with a poisoned cup you know and a devil sort of behind <laughs> her whispering you know do it do it you know but she what no poisoned <laughs> so it's kind of hilarious but i also think that then subsequently uh, why, one of the reasons why i think the other house becomes this really you know just a real true artifact is that at the same time uh, that he's writing this then it almost simultaneously he writes the spoils of pointon which is also very short and what Maisie knew within 18 months he's written these three books mm-hmm. and what Maisie knew also too of course about uh, 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 an imperiled child um but they're all but each of them are, mm-hmm. are is taking this experiment further and further of taking away exposition and working in this retrospective um, mode and this this idea of the scenic method. And you can mm-hmm. see over these three short books, I mean, what Maisie knew and The Spoils of Pointon are fantastic short little novels, a lot more um uh, successful in my view than than um, than the other house, but but it's really interesting if you're interested in how a writer gets to how that gets to the mastery of their technique, they get mm-hmm. to experimentation, and the other house is that hinge, you know, it's the clue, it's the clue that shows you. I see. Yeah. So uh, so it, it sort of inadvertently became rather exciting, I think, to go back to, even though people's, uh, people just say terrible things about it, you know, genius on a bad day and things like that. <laughs> At least you're a genius, though. Um, yeah, really. So <laughs> one of the main reasons that critics have singled out for why the book maybe isn't so successful is that um, the characters specifically Rose lack a clear motive for the acts that take place. However, I, I personally, when reading it felt like it was rather obvious and straightforward, which was just, it was kind of a sex crazed cast of characters. And that was why they, you know, they just had, and maybe that's not very, um, faulty you know it's not worthy enough for literature to have a character who has like such a kind of absurd motive an unnatural motive but um what did you think of of like that critique of rose's motivations and of just the book's treatment of sexuality or repressed sexuality i mean i'm really interested in all of that um I, i mean i'm i'm really interested in and I think James was too, the idea that, well, I mean, you can't really call a murder a mistake, but let's say, let's, for for rhetorical, you you know, for rhetorical reasons, let's just call it a mistake or error or, you know, wrong act. I'm really interested in the wrong act that you try to, the mistake that reveals, that, that you interpret the mistake as a revelation of a hidden intention. Yes, okay. So in in retrospect, when you think about the novel, you think of this diabolically evil act, and you must and you you're quite right, Cassie, you you must link that to the degree of her passion, sexual mm-hmm. desire, right? So the the mistake it, the mistake is really just uh, the revelation of an intention, mm. and and when I, when I when I read the book maybe because because I 
you know, I was teaching it earlier. Um, and I, and I went back and looked at things that, you know, there, there, are, there are all sorts of clues about, about the oddness and the strangeness of her, um, of Rose's behavior. Oh, I know. She's so strange from the very beginning. She just <laughs> says things no one else would say. <laughs> and, and also, I mean, and there's some, some point she's referred to as like wearing the mask of Medusa. Um, I, you know, I mean, that's really pretty out there. <laughs> you know, I mean. She's out there. But like well, the reason that I that she's so interesting to me as and I think that James kind of, you know, overshot the mark, but he's really thinking of Nora in the doll's house or Hedda Gabler who ends up, you know, a suicide. This is, you know, he's really interested in the the neurotic woman so in, in in inverted commas you know of of the of that that sort of burst forth in the 1890s on the stage and and this is the canary in the coal mine right who is the indicator of a sick society and and how are their behaviors <laughs> a measure you know of really what's going on i mean they're the they're, they're like the they're the brave ones you know they're they're brave yeah. enough to to respond to the impossibility of their circumstances. Yeah, right? I could definitely see that because I, and not just Rose is completely governed by like this pure libido. Like Tony is, Jean is, even like Mrs. Beaver in a way where you know she's having all these machinations of setting this person yeah. up with this person and does the height work with this person? You know, yes, right. as well as just money and so everyone had this motivation that they were putting in very strange ways with the physical relationship. And like you said, Rose is the only one that's brave enough to like break the facade in a way and just be like, we got to go. Yeah, I'm going to burn the house down. I mean, I'm going to, you know, what, it, what is it? What is a, what is an object um, at once more venerated in Victorian society than the innocent child and more yeah. and and simultaneously more powerless um voiceless and disregarded than the child you know that's so that's a great that, point so so this is why i think in the end it feels like very much like a critique of the of of um victorian hypocrisy that that they um you know god forbid what would happen to the bank you know, oh, if, <laughs> oh no. no, the whole resolution was wild. I know, crazy. <laughs> but you know, but this, but this, the the figure of the female character, who is at, at once not insane, but not rational. This is a very mm. interesting. This is a very interesting yeah. um, dilemma to to uh, to experience because you know it'd be very easy to say oh you know she's a pathological lunatic you know but she's not she's absolutely not and then there's a wonderful um point where she says to Dennis after the act has been committed and that she's basically they're trying to figure out what the hell are they going to do with her and he says um she says to him you know what I am. If any man has known, and it's to the thing I am, whatever that is, you've come back at last from so far. It's the thing I am, whatever that is. I now count on you to stand by 
Whatever that is, Dennis mournfully marveled, I feel on the contrary that I've never, never known. Well, it's before anything a woman who has had such a need as no woman has ever had. Then she eagerly added, why on earth did you descend on me if you hadn't need of me? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> there you go. You said that you often are drawn to James's quote unquote difficult heroines, but maybe without, with the exception of Rose. Do you kind of stand by that? Or because I really loved her in a perverse sort of way. Well, I mean, I, I, I guess, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it just she's a child murderer. You know, it's a little, it's a little rough. It's a little rough. She's a very interesting child murderer, though. You know, I, as far as child murderers go. Yeah, and and one of the things that came up out of my reading group was people sort of saying, "Well, you know, Effie didn't seem real to me, so the degree of the the murder." you know, it's diabolical nature didn't, I mean, you have to hold a child down to drown them, right? You know, it didn't really come come through. I know, think about it. But you know, what's really interesting, what was really interesting to me was the second time I read The Other House and I knew what was going to happen. It was more horrifying to me than the first time that I didn't know, which is really, Mm. really, I find that really very curious um, the fact that I knew what was coming. So ha- so I love the Jamesian woman is, you know, uh, is a very, it's, a, it's talk about having company in the rabbit hole. You, you feel like your relation <laughs> ends up being populated by this cast of remarkable women that, 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 you know, that he created. And, and there's that famous um, thing when Elizabeth Hardwick was asked at a panel discussion, you know, to name the, the, the greatest uh, American woman writer. And she said, Henry James. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. That. That's yes. good. You know, so, so there, there is that, but this is a lesser work. Um, It has all sorts of interest in it, but one of the reasons why I would say that it's a lesser work, apart from all of the other things, you know, technical things you could talk about, is that that this is on the way to James's great late stage, the ambassadors, the wings of the dove and the golden bowl, and what you end up what what he what his true innovation and remarkable um, impact on the novel in English is that he takes what is essentially this scenic method, which he takes from plays, which you which is almost entirely what the other house is, and he mm-hmm. marries that to a psychological reality that is deep and affecting, a- yeah. and that's what makes the great. I mean. I would put I would include Lambert Strether from the from the ambassadors in 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 with these um he's not a woman but a great female great <laughs> characters um so so what I what what for its interest for me is that I see how he how he got there but but what I you know I wouldn't include Rose in in all of the the bad heroines that I adore because sure. I don't I don't have a full um, I don't have a psychological insight into her actions, really. No. In the in the way that um, that James gives us for with Kate Croy, for example, or Charlotte Stand. Yeah. So well, that's that's why. 
but yeah, you know, she's more of a character than a character. Yes, he's trying to he's trying to create a nature as I as I described it for you know so and he's taking that from Ibsen and and he's trying to say the nature will do what the nature will do and it doesn't require any psychological um conception behind it there's no what he called going behind right mm-hmm. but, when, but when you see when you see a, a character portrayed by a great actress what you see is their psychological process right yeah but, yeah. That's what the scenic method that's why it needed to be married to what he could already do which was have this extraordinary psychological insight into human character. Um mm-hmm. because that's what an actor brings to uh, uh brings to a scenic play, right? Is yeah. all of their complexity, all of their human complexity. So, so was this in your opinion like a sincere attempt by him to portray to portray with psychological accuracy the mind of a murderer no because this is the only (laughs) work of his to include a murder right so kind of what was he aiming for with that because it is hard because there's this odd tone that is created in this book it's not entirely serious um it's also really funny um and, yeah. and it creates like this very unsettling feeling. Well, that's what actually is so shocking about the act because you think that you're watching some sort of French farce and, you know, right. and they go in and they go out and they chitter chatter and, and you think it's this sort of frothy thing and then it turns like incredibly dark, like more dark than you could even conceive of. Um, so what do I think his intention was? I think his intention was to get back to work to make some money, he mm. had a, he had the German here, and he also had all of this. He 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 had all of this um, knowledge that he hadn't had before. Five years of working in the theater and trying to be a playwright, and having one opportunity and uh, having one disappointment after another. And, you know, Henry James is famous for, you know, he's saying his, his expression, you know, try to be someone on whom, no, on whom nothing is lost. Mm. He was somebody on whom nothing was lost. And he, he started to see with the other house, and this is in the notebooks. And then when he's writing, um, I think, what Maisie knew uh, within this 18-month period, he writes in his notebook, uh, something to the effect of, you know, bless the other house. It's yes. holding up a beacon to him like a shining light when he's trying, you, you know, because he, Henry James had the most extraordinary imagination. But the other thing we have to say is he was a formalist. He was fascinated and dedicated to the development of form. Um, so he, it's, you know, it's not like, you know, I'm going to sit down and write a flight of fancy he yeah. you know, he had a um he had a technique in mind um and the other house helped him develop that and so um so you know the other thing that i would have to say is about you know your guess is as good as mine about any any writer's intentions they may have their yeah. intentions for themselves but it's really what we as readers um respond to um, that's really 
the point. That's the point of your podcast too, I would imagine. That <laughs> yeah, and that's the goal. When you talk about that quote from James's journal, though, for a book that is sort of like the ugly duckling of his career, yeah. why, why do you think it's blessed in the creator's eyes? And when it talks about a precedent, what is the precedent being set? Is it is it that style that he's sort of moving into? Do you think it's the it's the tight scenic? Um, it, it's yeah, it's, okay. It's to keep it to keep it direct to scenes and to not expand in into this going behind. And also, most particularly, it's to um, to leave out exposition. There's no narrator yeah. anymore. And, and and James's earlier novels, the longer novels, you if you go back and have a look, you'll see. I mean, a, a narrator is speaking to you. A narrator is, is interpreting things for you. A narrator is telling you, um, you know, is weighing the, the scene that you've just read and how the character is responding to that. James, J, what what the other house helped James to develop and, and his experience in the theatre helped him to develop was um, an ideal of a sort of objective position. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because yeah. there isn't even like a, a character in the book that um, I've made my uh, adoration of Agatha Christie's Poirot books and also the the show with David Suchet, just one of my favorite things in the world. But there's not even like a Poirot person in this pot boiler murder mystery thing where, you know, he'll gather everyone into the room and be like, ah, this is the motive. This is how they did it. It's the, it, the motive and confession literally just comes out of this yeah. bickering, this yeah. scene by scene bickering. It's it was- so weird. And it's so obvious that because this is not a this is not a trope that he w- worked in or was familiar yeah. with at all. I mean, you know, that was uh, somebody in my reading group was sort of complaining about this. It said maybe I've watched too many CSIs or something, but everything uh-huh. rose straight away. How would this ever be a deception that could be carried off? But that's not mm-hmm. the point. No, and, if, and, it, and if you're and if you're and, and if you're um, a- attempting to describe and to do a portrait of a nature, then, you know, these sort of plot elements become kind of secondary, right? But you really, you remind me of something, and maybe this is probably, we should probably end on this, but the other thing too about why this would be a sort of a guiding light for him is because um, there's such profound ambiguity in everybody's response that I mean you know it's not that there isn't horror and 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 shock and what have you although the real yeah. arbiter the real arbiter of any um true appropriate response would be Mrs. Beaver and she she's he she's gone he, he's gone he clearly she's figured conveniently out conveniently left the premises conveniently left off the stage because were she on the stage she would dominate the stage and, and yeah. she would tell us she would tell us that that bitch is going to prison or something. You know, <laughs> she, would, she, she, she wouldn't be able to not. Um, she wouldn't be. Her, her character is too strong. So what's so maybe what what this helped teach James himself was that you know character is plot, and if I make yeah. a character like that, 
she's going to dominate. And if I make a character, you know, so I'm going to have to take her off. Mm. Um, the, uh, the closest thing that he gets in that is the doctor, uh, Ramage, I think his name is. Ramage, yeah. Um, is that, do you think that's how it's? Yeah, Ramage. Ramage. Um, yeah, he, 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 but he's like too scientific about it. He's like, well, if we put Rose with Dennis and we let them go over there and we all. I love that he's, like, I love he's described as being so, his face or his head being so white and round as to resemble a pill, which seems like <laughs> such a perfect thing for a doctor <laughs> to look like yeah. a But um, I think one of the things that, that this starts to uh, lead towards, which if you guys are interested at all, the, the, you could read The Spoils of Pointing in an afternoon or What Maisie Knew in an afternoon. Yeah, These yeah. are very short novels. Um, they're they're so extraordinary and and um, and they're so different from from anything that you would normally read and they were and they are all from this same period. But what he's really, it seems to me, uh, and and what becomes the most sort of profound technique of Henry James is to deal in ambiguity, to make ambiguity itself a kind of moral force, and the yeah. fact the fact that that you can argue on either side for any character. The fact that, yes. that, that through w- what ends up developing in his late novels, you know, stream of consciousness and varying points of view, but that this ambiguity allows you to see both sides um, of any set of circumstances, whether it's the most aristocratic and pompous character or whether it's the most abject and venal character, you, you know, what ends up, the, the, the dealing in this sort of ambiguity is an extraordinary kind of gift to a reader because it gives the subjective view to you. It, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't claim, it doesn't make a claim on your, it doesn't tell you a judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And great art can do that well. Yeah. Um, but I and maybe and like you said, this is sort of where the book fails. Is it's just hard to be ambiguous about child yeah. murder. Like exactly. <laughs> when you when you just tone it down a little bit, you're kind of <laughs> there. You're in the sweet spot. Well, that's why that's why the the sort of question hanging over the whole thing is why didn't he just stick with the rose poisons the child and then the, they think the child is this is in the notebook. Uh, when he first conceived mm. of it, that she poisons the child, and and then at the end of the novel, they think the child is dead, and then the doctor administers something, and she wakes up. She wakes up. Sure. So you have the same set of, and then so Rose is going to have to be cast out, and all the rest of it. She won't be carted off to prison, but she, all of the rest of it could still follow. But Effie didn't have to die. Didn't have to die. <laughs> well, we'll have to ponder that alternative history. <laughs> What would have happened? But um, just given all that we've said here about the book's flaws, but also its you know curiosities, um, do you think this book is worth reading on its own merits, or can it only be appreciated in the context of his other works? I absolutely think that it's worth reading on its own mm. merits. But- I'm so glad you said that because I think yeah. so too. Yeah. But you can't take, I can't take it out of context, but after I get, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this. After I gave my my last talk on it, um, I came downstairs and I was saying to my husband, you know, I just, there's, there's so much that's sort of problematic about it for me, but there's so much that's interesting. 
And he just sort of was half listening to me. And he says, ah, well, you know, he says, sounds to me like what you're saying is bad Henry James is better than no Henry James. And I yeah. think the thing. <laughs> yeah. It maybe wouldn't be the recommendation for where to begin. <laughs> no. unless, sure. unless you're into that kind of thing. <laughs> no. no, although, you know, sometimes a curiosity is exactly the thing that sort of triggers. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. I got to how could this guy have this reputation based on this book? Let me let me see the next thing. The yeah. next, the next thing. So maybe maybe it's the gateway drug for Henry James. I don't know. <laughs> do, do you have a personal favorite Henry James? I deeply, deeply love The Ambassadors. I think okay. um, that's a, a beautiful uh, a beautiful novel. And I the last novel that I did, um, which I've done like three times for the center of the Golden Bowl, which was which people say was James's last published novel. As it turns out, the outcry was his last published novel, but it yeah. doesn't match the trage- trajectory of the master, right? To add this little funny I thing. So maybe if you want to talk about the outcry sometime, we could do that. But um but the golden yeah. bowl it, the golden bowl um I think all three of those, the late phase novels, they're like George Eliot's Middle March or something. That if you if you read them in different phases of your life, they tell you completely different things, and mm. that's a very extraordinary experience as a reader to say, "How could I not see this? How did it? How did this not affect me in this way? How did or or, you know, how how is it possible that this addresses me so specifically?" When I read it before and I thought it was beautiful, but I didn't feel so um, addressed. So, but I, I think uh, of my favorite um, is the is the ambassadors because I I just I love that I love just the idea to say you know live all you can. It's it's a shame not to. Sure. So that's not what the other house says. No, um, not, not really. <laughs> no, no. This is the good thing. Everything's not like everything else, you know. So yeah, that's there's true. Also, there's a, there's so, there's such variables. Yeah. Before we wrap up, there was one more thing I, I meant to say earlier when we were talking about sort of the good woman of Jean Martel versus the bad of Rose Arminger. I think there's an interesting middle ground woman of Julia, Tony's wife. Who is basically the one that like sets up the dominoes and like prepares us for all the terrible motivations and actions to come where she's like, you can't marry unless our white daughter's alive. And like, you're just setting problems up at that point. And I, I think she's an interesting, she creates the monster in a way, starting with that promise. Or she just knows on some level. Yeah, she, she, she knows it's, something. She yeah. knows something, exactly. Uh, and she certainly knows she's going to die, and certainly nobody else yeah. is really much bothered by the fact that she's going to die. You don't no. believe her. <laughs> so so she's, she's quite the book, Effie is quite the bookend to her a mother in that regard. Um, yeah. Because it's, that's, um, I mean, Cassia said this uh, earlier, that the comic tone is so um, jarring and and strange somebody's dying in the next room and they're all you know doing their mm-hmm. friend 
pass in and out of the drawing room doors kind of things. Yeah. Um, oh, are you they coming? Explain to it lunch? as like she's no, tired or something. Yeah. Are you coming to lunch? She's no, not I'm tired. To lunch. You know, oh, I'm going to bring, I want to meet somebody. I'm bringing them to lunch. Well, when is lunch? When is lunch ready? And meanwhile, here's the doctor again. And, she, you know, she's dying. Um, so, yeah, it's very, it's very, very curious. It's very, very curious. Um, I did read one thing. There's very little written about this um, at all, but I, I did read one paper, which I completely disagreed with, that basically sort of said that that, that was postulating postulating a gay romance between Julia and Rose and that oh. – uh, and that they were, uh, um, you know, that the whole thing was sort of some. It doesn't make it falls apart, but that it was <laughs> sort of, um, revenge, and that in, that in fact Dennis is Dennis Dennis's desire is directed at Tony, not in fact at Rose, and uh, these all these. Wow. Kind of, but th- this is this is where criticism has gone now. Is is that you <laughs> just keep drawing different um, threads to. To to other kinds of imaginings that um, I, I don't interesting think, thought. I don't think that the text <laughs> don't. supports. I don't think that the text supports these things at all. But anyway, yeah. I mean, Julia, poor Julia. Oh my gosh. The other thing too is is that is the other reason why it's it's so odd for a Jamesian novel for um, characters to that they're literally sort of off stage, right? That they never. Yeah. Here, although in the ambassadors, you'll remember Cassia that um, Mrs. Mrs. New, what's her name, Mrs. Newman, Mrs. Newman, who sends Lambert Strether, who he works for essentially, who is Chad's mother. Um, she never appears. She's just kind of a directive um, sure. in, the, in the wings. But um, mm. yeah, there are other deaths. But not sure, but not murders. Yeah, and 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 the one other thing that I would link this one to, in terms of him him deliberately trying to write a pot boiler, what he would call a pot boiler, or or he says in in one of his notebook entries, you know, I'm determined to be thrilling, you know. <laughs> okay, aren't we all? <laughs> Knock yourself out. But um, is the turn of the screw, which I think is eighteen ninety seven maybe so a couple of years after this and if you remember in the turn of the screw one of the the the, the boy the uh the boy that the governess is is either tormenting to death or uh, or he sees a ghost or so she's either an, an hysteric or depending on how you want to read it or it's actually a supernatural story his heart stops but he's not literally murdered yeah that's a freaky book well Thank you, Sheridan Hay, so much for joining us um, in the rabbit hole, live from the rabbit hole. I'm excited to <laughs> to dig deeper in the future and okay, maybe even too. read The Outcry. Yeah. So thanks again. Yeah. Thanks so much. It's been so fun. Well, that's our show. Thank you for tuning in to Unburied Books. Our theme music is composed by John Hookstra. Join us again in two weeks when we discuss The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner by James Hogg. One of my all-time favorite books. We're so excited. We're so hyped. 